Well, welcome back to our sermon series based upon James Bryan Smith's book, The Good and Beautiful God. I want to offer the following quick recap of the sermons in this series because today is the last of the Sunday sermons. The final sermon in this series will be Thursday evening at our Monday worship, uh, Monday Thursday worship service. That's at seven o'clock. Hope to see you there. That's a shameless plug. So here are the sermons that have been in the series so far. The first is, what are you seeking? The answer is a transformation. The second is, is God bad? God is definitely good. It's our thinking that can be flawed. The third is trusting our Father. We use the Lord's Prayer as our guide. We can trust our Father no matter the circumstances. The fourth in the series, God delights in us. So don't place human limits on our Father's illimitable grace. Next was the prodigal father. We usually hear the prodigal son. Because prodigal means reckless, wasteful, and extravagant. And the love of our Father is prodigal. And last week's sermon was the holiness of God. The tension that we often feel with our Father is the tension between love and holiness. We're called to be different as our Father is different, but our sin nature separates us from Him. Therefore, He atones for our sin nature through Jesus restoring a right relationship with Him by grace through faith. Now, while I've written this series as a standalone series that complements the book, it is my hope and my prayer that you have been able to participate both in the reading of the book as well as the proclamation from the pulpit. And I also hope that you have had to wrestle with your faith. That you've had to practice critically thinking about your narratives of God and the narratives you have of Holy Scripture while actively listening to each other in group sessions. Now, foundational to this series are the following verses from Paul's letter to the Romans. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renovating of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Sharing life together through study and prayer, that's a, that's a part of the metamorphosis to which we are called. It's how we grow in our capacity to radically love others as Jesus radically loves us. And when we partner with the Holy Spirit in renovating our minds, we can discern the will of our Father who is good and trustworthy and generous and loving and holy. Now, another passage that's one of my favorites immediately follows today's scripture lesson from Philippians. And it's this one. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You see, everything we know about God... It's because God has chosen to reveal it to us. God didn't have to do this, but in his humility, he chose to do this because of his great love for us. This, then, is how we know that God is good and beautiful. And if he who created all that is seen and unseen is willing to reveal himself to us, moreover, make salvation possible for us, then the salvation that we receive, we must continue to work out, to develop with him. Now this word work out, I love this word. It means carry out your salvation until it's finished. It is finished. Isn't that beautiful? 
and carrying out our, our, our salvation until it's finished, we see we see Jesus past with us. We see our present work with Jesus and our future rest with Jesus. Now, the crux of carrying out our salvation until it's finished is developing a divine attitude. That's how Paul begins today's scripture lesson. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And the text that follows in verse 5 is known as the Christ hymn. It's an early hymn of the church. Did you know that? Paul, Paul took an early hymn from the church, put it in his letter. And as a music educator, I wish I knew the hymn tune. Because it's just a neat hymn. Paul used this early Christian hymn to illustrate for us the divine attitude leads to divine action. Now we know that the divine attitude of Jesus is humility and And as we consider today, we're also going to see that his humility results in divine action. And that is to empty himself for our sake. So first, let's consider Jesus' divine attitude. Humility. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, Paul writes, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, the word translated here as nature is also the word form or essence. See, Jesus is the very essence of the Father. He is the form of God that's understandable. The word translated as grasped means to seize with force, like a robber that might snatch a purse. You ever seen that happen? Verse 6 is meant to be seen as contrasting the human nature. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they so desperately wanted to be God that they attempted to snatch with force knowledge that wasn't theirs. Conversely, Jesus grasped at nothing, not a thing. Jesus knew who he was, and therefore he had no need to grasp at or clutch at his divinity. He was already divine. And friends, that's humility perfectly considered. For Jesus was so comfortable in his identity that he allowed his identity to speak for himself. Don't you wish you were there? I hope by the end of this life, I'm able to just be completely fine with who I am and who God is in me. You know, even when the people that Jesus created refused to believe in him, it didn't shake his identity. And that divine humility of Jesus led to divine action. He emptied himself. Now in the Greek, that's known as kenosis. And yeah, there's a lot of Greek today. You'll be fine. I got to get it out of the way before next Sunday. Okay, go get my Greek out of the way. The text says he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Nothing. Kenosis means to empty. So once again, nature is used for form. And the word for servant, servant, listen, can also be translated to slave. So the text literally says, Jesus emptied himself by morphing into a slave. That is becoming human. Jesus did not empty himself of divinity to become human. Listen. He added humanity humanity to his divinity. And kenosis made God tangible, understandable, relatable. 
But Jesus emptying himself, that didn't end with becoming human. Because Paul says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. See, Jesus did not think that equality with with his father was something that he should use to his advantage. He was God in the flesh. And yet he hung out with the people that society considered unclean. He whose power created the universe advocated against all the fallen power structures of humanity. He shared life and offered life to the least of these, and he still does. But Jesus' kenosis went further. Jesus emptied himself unto death. He became obedient to death. Now try to wrap your mind around this. God can't die because God is. He is eternal. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is before the beginning. He is after the end. And yet, by emptying himself, God had a beginning and an end. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Take a moment to just appreciate the mystery of a God who stands outside of time and simultaneously subjected himself to time. But the humble attitude of Jesus bade him one more action. Jesus emptied himself all the way to the cross and on the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Today, I end this sermon with a cross in view. Because I think we have taken for granted the scandal of the cross. You know, the cross has been a sign and a symbol of our faith for almost 2,000 years. We look at the, the cross... We say something of beauty and something of significance. You know, there are nearly 7,200 languages in the world today. Did you know that? I suppose it would be difficult for all the different languages of the world to understand each other. But I'm pretty sure that most, if not all, would recognize the cross and its 2,000-year-old connection to a man named Jesus. And I think that's why we forget the shock value of the cross. Because the cross was a state-sponsored instrument of death. And a very persuasive one. That means the cross is a lot like our electric chair. Can you imagine instead of singing the old rugged cross, we sang the old wooden chair? On a hill far away sat an old wooden chair. Can you imagine? How offensive. You know, Romans used to place the crucified at the busiest intersections of the empire. They did this to stand as a deterrent against insurrection. So imagine with me as you're driving around Harrisburg tomorrow or perhaps today. Can you imagine multiple electric chairs at multiple um, with multiple executions? At the entrance and the exit ramps 
that are leading to and from Jonestown Road and Progress Avenue and Camp Hill and Mechanicsburg. Can you imagine seeing multiple electric chairs with executions constantly taking place at those major coming and goings? Because that's what the cross was doing. It was scandalous and it was shocking. Not to mention that crucifixion was a slow and a painful death. Jesus was exposed to the elements like weather and insects. The damage to his wounds only intensified as his body was stretched. Jesus underwent headaches and convulsions and dehydration and the gradual suffocation caused by fatigue as the weight of his body crushed his lungs. Jesus' body literally decayed as it was dying. Now, sisters and brothers, I'm telling you all this because the cross is ugly. It's hideous. We who were created in the image of a good and beautiful God created a filthy, disgusting, vile instrument of death and we took great delight in using it. And that just makes the cross hideous. And so I ask myself, does God have any pride And Jesus was and is the Lord of all creation. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet yet he allowed the world to mock and insult and kill him. Over and over, the majesty and the lordship of Jesus Christ was insulted. The Roman soldiers insulted Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews! The crowd insulted Jesus. Crucify him! Still others said, well, he saved others. Let him save himself. But the insults didn't end there. You ever wonder why Jesus was placed in the middle? Perhaps we think it was because it was the most important person crucified that day. And well, that's true. That's not the reason, though. You see, the intention of placing Jesus in the middle between two criminals was to further insult him. That an evildoer was on Jesus' right and on left implied two things. Number one, that implied that Jesus was an evildoer. And number two, that he must just be the same as the man on his right and on his left. Jesus, the King and Lord, came to personally fellowship with us as one of us. And we stuck him in the middle of the worst we had to offer. And then we made fun of his lordship. Clearly, God has no pride. But he does have humility. That's because pride repels. And humility invites. God is humble. God emptied himself. And Jesus' humble kenosis shouldn't surprise us. After all, didn't Jesus say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost? I mean, Jesus spent the whole of his earthly life hanging out with the wrong crowd. 
Why should his dying moments be any different than his living ones? The boy was born in a cattle stall to poor people. He grew up in Nazareth. I don't know if you've heard this before, but nothing ever good comes out of Nazareth. The closest to Jesus were fishermen, day laborers, a reformed tax collector, a few women. And Jesus didn't hang out with any of the right people, the good people. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He hung out with the diseased and the polluted. And when Jesus hung out with these people, he never treated them like they were small, like they didn't matter. Jesus treated them like equals in the eyes of God. And so as Jesus lived, so did he die, hanging out with sinners. All because he emptied himself. His attitude is humility. His action is kenosis. He emptied himself for our sake. And never has that been more clearly demonstrated than on the cross. Friends, the passion is now before us. And the cross is in view. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we have gained an interest in our Savior's blood. Not that we might be filled with privileges or rights, but that we might be emptied from self and alive in the amazing love of Jesus Christ. Jesus' words still ring true for we who follow him. If anyone will come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Thanks be to God that we are only called to carry a cross daily because our Savior has done the hardest part and He did it once and for all. In the words of Charles Wesley, and can it be that though my God shouldst die, for me. And as we go now to the offering, I invite the ushers to prepare themselves and come on forward. And I offer this song based on Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?